So Dave, you spent Memorial Day weekend out on the open road. Oh yeah, yeah, yep. I got to. Oh, it's just beautiful here in Ohio. Um, it's uh, you know, it, it was like the perfect weather for motorcycle riding, where it's like you could wear all your protective gear um, and not be like crazy hot and sweaty um, or cold or anything. It's it's like a, there's like ten days a year that are like that, and uh, that was, that was my weekend. It was it was beautiful weather. Oh, that's wonderful. How, how are things for you? Uh, the opposite of that. Um, so you didn't so, have a motorcycle. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. We had, well, so it was a cascading series of system failures. Uh, we were, so we're, we're selling our house right now. And so in order to show the house, you, you, know, you can't be in the house, uh, when, uh, when folks are, are taking a look at it. So we decamped, uh, for a nearby residence inn uh, for the weekend, which mm-hmm. could have been fun in a camping kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, except that, uh, the, our son got sick and then we had oh, for between Saturday and, uh, Monday night, we had, a I guess, six, nine tornado warnings, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, historic flooding in the city. Uh, so huge chunks of downtown, uh, or were underwater, mm-hmm. um, just a cataclysmic rain. Uh, yeah. So nice little, nice little weekend. So did a lot of people come by for the the viewing? Uh, No, infuriatingly, no. Um, And, you know, shame on us for showing it on Memorial Day weekend. I think that was probably optimistic of us. But, um, you know, I'm sitting here watching the alarm system, waiting for the front door to open. And, yeah, Mm -hmm. not as many visits as we would have liked. Yeah, well, you would think. It's like people would be like, wow, I wonder what the house looks like during a tornado. And it's like the best, (laughs) you know, how often do they get to do that? There would be people lined up. Yeah, that's right. Sturdy? Is it sturdy? Let's find out. Yeah. 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 (laughs) <laughs> that's too bad too bad yeah so we'll try again next weekend yeah we'll try again good luck yeah so what do we got in the show this week dave yep uh we're going to talk about uh airlines uh meeting security researchers uh firefox meeting advertisers uh fitbit meeting dogs and roombas meeting orwell nice that sounds very promising that's that sounds like a bunch of dg show red meat yeah where, where should people go to get that uh, yeah, they go to HTTPS, DigiShow.org, Dees and Dave, Jesus and Gunner Show.org. Mm-hmm. And what's on the cutting room floor? Yeah, so we got uh, Mad Men postmortems. Uh, we got uh, programming fonts, and uh, Robin Price uh, gave us a nice little uh, Vim editor uh, tutorial uh, over the web. Very nice. Very nice. Thanks, Robin. Yeah, yeah thanks, Robin. So, uh, so this thing where this guy walks into an airplane and commandeers it from the Ethernet jack under his seat. Tell me more about this. Yeah, it, you know, it almost, I thought you were telling me a joke. Like, so a guy walks into an airplane. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So now that, uh, now the feds are, so it's, instead of just this guy tweeting saying that he, he pulled out his Cat6 cable and he started plugging things in, um, now the feds are saying that he did it. Um, and that uh, they're, they're claiming that he obtained physical access to the networks uh, of a seat electronic box, or SEB. I never knew about these, um, which are installed two in a row, one in each side under passenger seats on certain planes. Um, and then so he removed the cover and uh, by wiggling and squeezing the box and um, plugged in his uh, Cat6 cable um, uh, with a modified connector and... and uh, 
use the default IDs and passwords to gain access to the in-flight entertainment system. I don't know what default IDs and passwords means. I don't know if that's like admin and password, like on your router or what. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, I really like the detail here too. Uh, Cat6, not Cat5. Because, no. you know, he's not an amateur. Like, he's going to use Cat6, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. well, yeah, you don't have a lot of time on the airplane. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so the reaction has been harsh. Um, and he, it, so far, he hasn't, as far as I could tell, he hasn't been charged with any crime. Um, and, uh, but, you know, there are a lot of security researchers that, you know, that, that they're like, well, yeah, it's a good thing to be able to test these things. But other people are saying that, there it's it's one thing to like like do penetration testing but another thing to like try to mess around the plane while it's like flying and there are other people and you're putting potentially lives at risk right right which i think is a little bit breathless i mean um i mean the likelihood well i mean if so also this researcher also has a history of making kind of extravagant claims like this right yeah um so so whether or not he did it uh i guess the fbi is about to find out but um uh, probably a bad idea to do live testing on uh like an airplane like probably not a not a spectacular idea um but also i mean just like everybody's angry at everybody over this story right like people are uh people are upset with the airlines and the airplane Mm -hmm. manufacturers for even making this like putting this on the table as a possibility uh people are angry with the researcher um just i mean just like a complete uh just a complete mess so so whose fault is it dave it's everybody's fault Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so like to me, shouldn't like maybe maybe the, the, I'm sure people are getting yelled at behind closed doors, but I would think that Congress would be pulling people like uh, you know the air, air, airplane manufacturers and airlines up in front of Congress and giving them hell and and about you know what what what's going on here? Um, mm-hmm. Like really, um, if that's truly the case as far as like being able to access avionic system from the passenger uh, side. Um, uh, but yeah, and, and I don't think that it's right, like, like we were saying, for um, a security researcher to do it with live human beings on the plane to be able to try stuff out. That, that's not cool. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it's, yeah, this is messed up. Yeah, it is messed up. So, and here's what, the, the angle that I think about this from is like from the, like who gets sued, right? Or who gets taken mm-hmm. to jail if something goes wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So if, uh, if I'm an airplane manufacturer or if I'm an airline and I've left access to, you know, trivially simple access to my avionic systems from the passenger seat, mm-hmm. uh, can I be held liable for that? Mm-hmm. And yeah, especially in this post, uh, 9-11 world, right? Yeah. Where, uh, like, I remember, I'm sure you re- you remember this, like, I would be on commuter flights where the only thing between me and the cockpit was a curtain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's And right. a lot of times a curtain would just be open and, yeah. and uh, you know, I could see in. Yeah, know? yeah, that's right. Um, and so the, so I guess, you know, the airplane manufacturer can say, like, well, you know, you didn't change the username and password, so, so bad on you, right? Um, yeah. Or even more complicated, what if the what if it's not the airline that's responsible for the that part of the upkeep of the airplane? What if it's like the leasing company that does the that does ongoing maintenance, right? And they're the ones who should have set up the uh, set up the software properly. And even if they did set up the software properly, um, is it the responsibility of uh, is it is it the researcher's responsibility if they? I mean, he did pry open the box, I guess. So he's like mm-hmm. pretty obviously at fault, right? Because they. You know, they lock the door, 
so to speak. Yeah, it's yeah. not like he tripped holding a Cat6 cable and accidentally plugged <laughs> in, you right. know, and then he's running NMAP or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, yeah really interesting. Well, um, and even, what about the... I don't know if it would be if FAA would have some ownership in this as far as um, like the processes in the past of being very, you know, waterfall, very long, you know, stretches of waterfall sort of design and stuff like that. And and um, and then it sets up this culture of, well, we can't update the systems uh, because it's been approved. And if we change anything, we got to go through the whole approval process where um, – you know, I don't think it's, you know, they're doing DevOps uh, as far right. as like approval. Right. And and maybe that's an opportunity for improvement too. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've actually spent the weekend uh, doing a lot of reading on the you know, on DevOps and microservices and system design and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. um, finding ways of making, so making your system more modular um, by having a bunch of kind of autonomous uh, individual autonomous systems linked together, loosely coupled. Right. Yep. Um, this is, in fact, how Sweden designed their jet fighter. Um, so it is a bunch of loosely coupled components, which makes the which makes it much easier to replace stuff in the field. So if you mm-hmm. want to upgrade a particular subsystem on the jet, um, they make that uh, they make that a lot easier, right? And you don't have to you know basically recertify the entire airplane. Um, yeah, I just I, that is that is so that approach is really interesting to me, especially for something as complicated and risk averse as you know building airplanes. Yeah. Um, uh, so my friend Jim Stogdall has also written about this idea of uh, emergent threats, um, and by emergent he means like in complex systems. Like say you have like a quote unquote microservices kind of airplane, like a highly modularized airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can compose a bunch, if you can compose an airplane out of a bunch of reusable parts there are going to be certain system interactions that you can't predict mm-hmm. and may in fact do you harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kind of modeling the threat, so to speak, becomes a completely different exercise because you don't have kind of one monolithic thing which you can completely understand. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. So now we're mm-hmm. venturing off into like super hypothetical world. But um, yeah, I said, that, I mean, this kind of natural conflict between the need to kind of quickly respond to changes in the environment, you know, from an airplane design point of view. Um, and that means, you know, both like computer information security threats, as well as market changes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that is, that's actually in tension with this notion of like 100% reliability that we demand from the airplane. Right. It's interesting. So the moral of the story is that everybody should get their own Swedish fighter plane. I, would, yeah. Fix a problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is what I'm, this is what I'm screaming. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. This message brought to you by the Swedish Chamber of Commerce. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The good news is for uh, United folks um, is that uh, they're going to reward people uh, who flag security flaws um, with uh, and shower them with uh, frequent flyer miles. Huh. Uh, Or did did frequent flyer miles suddenly become a lot more valuable? Um, probably not. It's probably, it, you know, it's probably something with terms and conditions with things that expire and, and it's cheap for them. It's cheaper for them to give them away than it is for cash is yes. my guess. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's true. Cause they get to print that money. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So the, the thing here is it, um, they're, they're giving out mileage points instead of cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, 50,000 points for uh, cr- cross, site scripting bugs uh, to 1 million uh, points for uh, high severity vulnerabilities that could allow an attacker to, uh, 
to do remote code execution on the United system. That's great. And we've, and we've talked about this on the show before, this notion of uh, bug bounties as a way of, uh, as a way of discovering flaws. Um, I think Dan Gear at his last, uh, who's like the CTO of InQtel, uh, mm-hmm. the CIA's uh, venture capital arm, he did that speech at Black Hat, I guess it was last year, recommending that the government pay for uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, right, yeah, by all the zero days. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, by all the zero days, yeah. Um, so I, that's interesting. I wonder if we'll start seeing more, um, I mean, in this case, it was United, but it could just as easily be McDonald's or Walmart. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if they had, the, you know, we suddenly have a bunch of private companies bidding up the value of, uh, of security flaws. Yeah, yeah. So now, now you get like a McDonald's uh, gift certificate or something. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, five million Big Macs. Um, yeah. But but the thing here with United, what was interesting is that in the terms and conditions, it explicitly called out that it's only for uh, their like web presence, not for penetration testing of like on. Uh, uh, any testing on aircraft or aircraft systems such as in-flight in, uh, entertainment or Wi-Fi. I wonder, wonder why they, they added that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a boring. <laughs> yeah, where's the challenge? Yeah. yeah, so you can imagine you get on a plane with all these like uh, computer nerds with their Cat6 cables all like ready to go. <laughs> you know, you have like a hackathon. You know? <laughs> that's right. On the flight from Boston to uh, LaGuardia, yeah. <laughs> They'll love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrible. Um, oh, did you, uh, did you hear, did you see this article about uh, Uber's partnership with uh, Carnegie Mellon? And are you putting partnership in air quotes? Yeah, I am putting partnership in air quotes. So we talked about this on the on a previous episode where uh, Uber is now going to compete with Google for the self-driving car thing. So they went to, you know, one of the hotbeds of robotics research in the country, which is in Pittsburgh, right, at Carnegie mm-hmm. Mellon. And uh, so it turns out that uh, when they said partnership, they didn't mean so much of a partnership as much as we're going to build a lab across the street from the Carnegie Mellon lab, and we are going to poach all of the researchers from Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, yeah. This company is just terrible. Like, they're just they're just so, uh, so unpleasant with everything they touch. It's just, yeah. ugh. Well, I'm not, I'm not totally surprised by that because, like, Google... Like I, I actually this morning I, I did a Google map uh, from the the Google um, Pittsburgh location to Carnegie Mellon is like a thirty five minute walk. Sure, sure, yeah. No, I mean you know, uh, and the same thing up in Boston around you know yeah. MIT and Harvard. Like you get, you know you obviously like you get a bunch of people at a particular skill, and you're gonna have like clusters of people around the the industry. But like, but you know, doing this press release where you're quote unquote having a partnership, and then you're like literally hiring away the director who's who's running the partnership and bringing yeah. him over to your side. Like that's, I yeah, that's just terrible. Yeah, yeah, it's not cool. But hopefully, it'll like as somebody from. Western Pennsylvania, I'm glad to see the jobs there. And, and I wonder, too, if, uh, you know, you look at all the, like, Silicon Valley, how hard it is to hire talent and how expensive it is. And, and even, you know, like, was it class action lawsuits about, you know, having these companies um, have agreements uh, behind the scenes, um, putting salary caps and agreeing not to, uh, to poach people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of nice to see, you know, People getting employed uh, in you know the Rust Belt, um, and and maybe it it'll make the wages more competitive uh, for around there because uh, you know I know you know as somebody who grew up 
um, and started off working in a town where there was like one major employer um, for you know my skill set. The the wages were artificially uh, lower, and by having the the competition, that that will uh, balance things out. Um, so we'll we'll see. Yeah, it's interesting as like the, as the kind of forgive the metaphor, especially in the, my current context, but like as the water line for expertise raises, right? To, and so in order to be competitive in the economy, you have to get more and more skilled um, mm -hmm. because the less and less skilled stuff gets automated away. Yep. Um, it's interesting to see uh, kind of all eyes going back towards, like you say, like Rust Belt, like Pittsburgh, Detroit, where you have like all of this engineering, like basically hardware expertise. Mm -hmm. um, and now with stuff like 3D printing and CNC machines and things like that, like the, all those skills have actually become a lot more valuable um, yep. than they had been, right? Uh, as more and more people get involved in the work, right? It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, the other thing with Uber too is, you know, speaking of Uber and um, not cool, is just like imagine you're an Uber driver, and and you know they're they're just right out telling you your days are numbered. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's you know, kind, of, like, kind of well, and that's that. That's the ethos I think that makes Uber so unpleasant as a company. Just you know, watching them, watching the press work is like, the, they are so flinty and unsentimental mm -hmm. um, about doing uh, about doing things that will make that <laughs> about doing things that are better for Uber. Um, mm -hmm. They don't seem to have uh, you know a sympathetic bone in their body. Um, yes, until. Uh, there's a crisis, and then the crisis management company uh, surgically implants <laughs> right. an artificial one. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, a CMU designed beating heart inside Uber. <laughs> that's <right. laughs> yeah, that's <Exactly>. awesome. <laughs> uh, oh, speaking of that, have, mm -hmm. have you ever been to the uh, robotics uh, or the Robot Hall of Fame in Pittsburgh? I can't say that I have. Oh yeah, yeah. So there's, um, it's at the the Carnegie Science Center. Um, so they actually have like like every year they have inductions to the Hall of Fame uh, for famous robots. Um, so they have like Robbie the robot, um, you know. They have uh, like C three PO and all that, and you can go in and like check them out. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really cool. Huh, cool. So speaking of speaking of beating hearts, uh, the beating heart of the open web is without a doubt Mozilla. Uh, Mozilla.org. Those guys do a bunch of great work um, mm -hmm. to uh, keep the web free and open. Um, and so, but but another flagship product, Firefox, mm -hmm. uh, which everybody uses, um, they're making a change. Yep, yep, yeah. So they are. Um, uh, so whenever you bring up a new tab, one of the things that they want to do is put um, suggested towels based upon your browsing history. Suggested uh, tiles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, Firefox will will take a look at your history, um, match that with uh, relevant advertisers, and provide little tiles of saying that, oh, boy, you looks like you would really like to go to Amazon right now. Um, and so it makes it really convenient for users to bring up new tabs, so they don't have to really think and just they could just click right onto the uh, Amazon tab. Interesting. So is this, you know, is the logic for that inside the browser itself or is it like sending information back up to Mozilla and then coming back down? Yeah, I think that it sends it up to, uh, it sends a good chunk of it up to uh, uh, Mozilla and it'll do that matchmaking and then send you back a relevant ad. Um, 
or not not an ad, but it's a tile. So it's instead of it like, well, I don't and I don't know what how obtrusive it, obtrusive it's going to be. Whether it's just like an Amazon logo, or is it going to be like, oh, Amazon promotion, buy this cell phone or whatever, um, screaming at you, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, you can forgive them for wanting to come up with something like this because, uh, I mean, historically they've been reliant on, uh, like the, like the search revenue from Google, right. Or, yep. uh, or the investments from Google. And obviously with Google building Chrome, that's kind of like that relationship has gone sideways. And so they're looking for other ways to make money. Yeah. Um, so now it's, it's not, so that relationship is over with. And, yes. and so whenever, uh, so now the default is Yahoo. So mm-hmm. whenever, like, I recently did a Yum update, and um, it, it it optimized my uh, search preferences for Yahoo. <laughs> God, Just what like, I wanted. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Living in this late capitalist world where everything is being optimized on my behalf. This is, mm-hmm. everyone, everyone wants to be so helpful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I would think for new installs, cool. That's that's what you want to do. Great, but to change existing users' preferences, that's that's not cool. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, and um, but for me, it's I don't like that whole thing at all. And um, I also don't like even before that they, you know, before this gets rolled out. Like right now with Firefox, if I bring up a new tab, it shows me tiles for the websites that I've most recently visited, trying to guess where I want to go. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't like that either um, because um, a lot of times I'm doing like presentations or, uh, uh, you know, sharing my screen out over a webcast and everything. And whenever you're doing demos like that or presentations, all that does is just create a distraction uh, for like, oh, why is that guy looking at Amazon or, yeah. you know, whatever. He's shopping for shoes or whatever. It, it's like, <laughs> I you know, it, and so at least – it's not the default behavior, but I can set up um, new tabs to be uh, like a blank page, and you can configure that by hitting like a gear or something in the upper right corner of, of the uh, the new tab. Um, I don't know if there's a way to do that on Chrome or not. I, I don't think I've figured that out. Yeah, so th- so uh, actually a good way to solve this problem on both Firefox and on Chrome is to uh, create a new personality or a new identity um, mm-hmm. for a demo. Right. Mm, uh, so you yeah. have your like, which is, you know, and that that identity is kind of brand new in the world, has no history um, and probably only, you know, only has a history of the links that are involved in the demo. So that's that's one mm. way of doing it. Yeah. Well, th- another thing that um, that I'm a big fan of is uh, screen grab, uh, which is an add on for Firefox. So mm-hmm. um, and and like so often whenever you're like making slides, a lot of times like you're doing like uh, a satellite or or whatever of, of a web page um, you could take a picture of your whole window and then paste that in there but again to me that's a that's a distraction because it shows like oh he's using this add-on or he's using that add-on and it's it's just it's a distraction yeah, um, yeah. it's like when you screen... see when you well, yeah like when you see screenshots of uh, somebody's mobile phone uh, yeah. you like compulsively check their battery status <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah oh, he's using yeah. AT&T or, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly right, right. Mm-hmm. and yeah. and so uh, with screen grab you could like right click and you could pick the the currently viewed window or you could do the whole page and it'll like grab the whole page which you can't even physically do uh, without mm-hmm. something like this um, and it's beautiful and and you could save it to and the other thing is like um 
in the past, you would have to like do a screen snapshot of a window and then save it to a file and then go into like LibreOffice and file import image and place it wherever you want. Where here you could just like right click, screen grab, copy window to, uh, you know, to your paste buffer and then control V and you paste it right in. It's just beautiful. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. All right. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh, let's see. So, but uh, now I, as far as advertising, so I use ad blocking software, right? We, we've talked about this okay. before. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and what's funny about that is, um, listening to uh, security now, um, where Steve Gibson, who's like the, it's like two guys, Steve Gibson, Leo Laporte, Steve Gibson is like, Oh yeah, I use screen block, uh, ad blocking all the time. I don't, I, my conscience is clean because I'm tired of this stuff like going all over the, you know, annoying ads that are screaming at me, plus all the security vulnerabilities that um, get stuck in by the ag ad aggregators where, you know, you could slip in malicious code. And mm -hmm. uh, whereas Leo Laporte, on the other end, is, well, geez, I, you know, it's like as somebody who runs a web presence that puts ads on his website, and that's how he puts, you know, food on his family's table and can pay his employees, you know, using ad blocking software is, you know, he has a problem with that because it's like, well, how, how do you strike this balance? And um, one of the things that, that Leo thought of, though, is that, well, what, let's try to map this to other sort of things where what about, um, you know, do you skip ads with your TiVo? Or, mm -hmm. you know, if do you leave the room when the commercials are on um, when you're watching live TV? And it's like, well, in the same way, you're, you're cheating. Um, mm -hmm. by using the ad block software. So I thought that was interesting, and it's a hard problem to solve. Yeah, well, and, and it, that you're also seeing more advertising, that is, or native advertising, they call it, where you've, you, the advertising is actually the content itself, which makes it a lot yes. harder to uh, a lot harder to block. Um, and you see that on TV and on the web. Um, yep. And, uh, yeah, I think it's all right. I think it's all right. I mean, actually, it's funny. When I turn the ad blocker off for whatever reason, um, it is amazing how much more, how much slower the internet is <laughs> just yeah. in general. Like you go to some of these pages, especially, uh, the worst offenders are like local TV news stations. Oh, yeah. Um, which is, uh, I mean, if you know, you go to a local TV news station and then go into the, uh, like inspect element or whatever, like go into the developer view of the webpage and take mm -hmm. a look at how many third parties are being interacted with on that page. Wow. Um, I mean, yeah. sometimes it's up into the hundreds. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Need a way to block that. Yeah. Yep. That'd be nice. So there is a way to block that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's, um, speaking of Firefox, um, there are, uh, there's, there's um, optional tracking protection. Um, and there's some people, some researchers, they wrote a paper, uh, for, I think it was for IEEE, and um, they said that it uh, reduces the load time for top news sites by 44%. Wow. Yep. And then it also, uh, they said uh, uh, the top, uh, the, the, a reduction of 67.5% reduction of number of uh, cookies gets set too. Jeez. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, is that it's an experimental, right? Well, it's not experimental, but it's, it's not the default. So you have to do like an about uh, colon config and then go in and manually change the mm -hmm. default from false to true, um, but then that's done. 
Um, and I, I did that last night and so far so good. I haven't noticed any, you know, things breaking yet. So I'll, I'll report back if, if, uh, if it does fail, but I, but I think that's really interesting as far as, uh, you know, Firefox having this feature, um, and good for them. But I wonder if that makes their, uh, new tab thing more valuable because just like Chrome, they are the ones that, that can become the mediator in terms of the, uh, between the, the end user and the, uh, advertiser. Right. 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 Yeah. But I, I have noticed, uh, and maybe it's a placebo effect, but it does seem to be, uh, Firefox does seem to be a lot zippier. And I've, I've heard a lot of complaints, too, about Chrome being very, uh, like, slow and memory-hungry anymore. Yeah, it's a, it, it definitely, although this is a true, I don't know if you've, maybe, again, this is a placebo effect, but I find if I use any browser for a certain length of time, eventually it just becomes... I find it really slow, and then when I switch to the new browser, things move really quickly, and then three months later, I'm switching back. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I'm not sure, quite sure what the mechanics are behind that, but um, mm. yeah, interesting. So in other news, Dave, uh, do you hear about the Xiaomi entering the, uh, the U.S. market? Yeah, yeah. These folks are famous for being kind of the most Chinese of the Chinese hardware manufacturers uh, in the sense that they just build knockoffs. Mm -hmm. um, so like... You can get a Fitbit, but it's like a $15 Fitbit um, yeah. and like close enough to the performance of the original item that um, anyway, th so they're not, now they're going to enter the U.S. market and potentially disrupt a bunch of people. Right. And then there's so all the, the chattering classes uh, covering this stuff are, are saying like, well, on one hand, um, it's going to create competition, right, for folks like Fitbit. Um, so why would you buy a $100 Fitbit when you can get a $15 Xiaomi uh, uh, kind of knockoff? On the other hand, uh, Xiaomi's argument, which is, I think, a pretty good one, is, no, no, what we're doing is bringing fitness tracking to the people that can't afford $100 bracelets, right? Yes, um, yes. And so, you know, people are going to, you know, and so the disting distinguishing between Xiaomi and Fitbit becomes like uh, a brand and status thing, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like price, di or, you know, uh, price discrimination rather than, um, uh, rather than, you know, straight one-to-one -one, uh, kind of competition. It's interesting, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's amazing though too how like as somebody who's played around with uh, Arduino's and uh, things like that, how inexpensive a lot of the that technology is. Like, um, like there's like these Chinese websites like uh, AliExpress and and where you know you think eBay is cheap for Arduino stuff. Like check out like AliExpress where you can get like a gyroscope for like a dollar fifty, um, mm -hmm. and and plug it right into an Arduino and. Um, and there's other ones that are like, uh, it's just amazing how inexpensive that is. And then if you add up what the component parts are, um, you can clearly understand how they can make, um, something like that for $15, um, and how overpriced, uh, like a Fitbit is, um, you know, for like, uh, in order of magnitude more expensive than that. Um, but you're also paying for, um, you know, probably the, uh, I guess the innovation and, uh, you know, paying for somebody that's trying to make that market. Um, so I don't know. Yep. Well, yeah, and so you got to, well, also with the Fitbit, you're like, you're paying for the advertising, you know, you're basically, you know, you're carrying the freight for like the, literally, the brand. For the, like route, yeah. 
the brand and the routes to market and stuff like, you know, it's not cheap to get yourself on the shelf in Best Buy. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, you're, so you're paying for that to, to a certain extent too. Um, but this is the, this is exactly the thing that is forcing a lot of traditionally hardware focused industries into this notion of like, well, we're all a software company now, right? Everybody's now a technology company because it's only through software that you can kind of really distinguish yourself. You can't distinguish yourself on price and performance, uh, relying solely on hardware, uh, because somebody's yeah. going to come in and commoditize you immediately. Right. Yeah, and that's where you know so much of this stuff is. It's the hardware is more of a peripheral, and it's a, attached yeah. to a cloud backend, yeah, and that's exactly. where the value it, is. Yeah. Exactly. I got my wife a a set of uh, uh, sensors that you put in plants, um, mm-hmm. and you know the, it tests the, the moisture, the soil, and the uh, level of fertilizer, and all this other like cool gadget, right? Like to measure sunlight, measures rainfall. Um, but the actual gadget itself is, as you say, like a peripheral to the actual service, which is the app, which Mm -hmm. alerts you when one of the levels falls below, you know, uh, falls below normal levels and will tell you like, Hey, you need to water this plant or this plant needs fertilizer, or maybe you need to move this thing to another room because it's not getting enough sunlight. Um, and that's where all the value is in the product. Um, you know, I think over time we're definitely going to see more services like that. A lot more, uh, where the hardware is basically a give a giveaway, um, and it's just meant to kind of get you plugged into a you know a much more sticky uh, customer experience that is based on you know the internet and software. Yeah, well, is the Fitbit is you buy the hardware is and this is mm-hmm. not somebody who owns a Fitbit, but you buy the hardware and then that's it. You use the app and it's plugged into a web backend. Do you think it could, if that's the case, do you imagine it turning into like the fifteen dollar Fitbit? with um, a $10 a year subscription to, you know, the web service or whatever that price is. Well, so the nice thing about the the Fitbit, the reason, I mean, when I was using the Fitbit, uh, I was using the Fitbit because the software was so good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was like pleasant to, pleasant to look at. It was easy to use. It was easy to kind of measure your, uh, measure your meals and stuff like that. Um, that experience was outstanding. The actual piece of hardware, um, I frankly didn't even like very much. But it was mm-hmm. like the sensor that gave me that made that software useful, so I used it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So I mean, I wonder if I wonder if Xiaomi is gonna. I wonder if their fitness tracker, you know, see if they really want to get disruptive. They just build a fitness tracker that uh, plugs into the Fitbit API. Yes. Yeah. Or the Google Fit API. Or the Google Fit API. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because exactly. I that's what I saw. Um, I, I actually was looking into the the. It's called a Mi Band and. Uh, uh, from Xiaomi, and that's the $15 thing. And then their app is like poorly rated on the Google Play Store. Uh, but somebody did a open source version of, uh, uh, I, I don't know if they just intercepted the calls and just reverse engineered the communications, but they, they've done an open source version that they've put in the Play Store um, and just threw it out there and encouraged people to fork it and play with it and, and uh, do stuff with it, which that, that'll be pretty interesting too where you know do you really need a cloud backend to track all that stuff or do you just want to um you know look at your app and if you lose the app that's fine you know do you historically need right. to keep all this stuff or or maybe have it stick a file uh, an excel uh, csv file in, in dropbox yeah 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 right 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 or populate a google sheet or something yeah yeah interesting, interesting. oh you found this dog tracker yeah. So in, in the same way that we talked about putting a Fitbit on a guinea pig, um, mm-hmm. somebody's actually done this to a dog. Um, so there's a thing called uh, Dogtelligent, 
so it's a $120 device. Uh, delivery is set to start in August 2015. And uh, so you could think of it as a dog collar that has uh, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, GPS, cellular communication, accelerometer, ambient temperature sensors, ultrasonic uh, micro speaker, uh, mic uh, and a microphone. And it's, uh, you know, it's all wrapped in uh, a casing that is uh, rugged, that's waterproof and chalkproof. All right. So that instead sounds, of having uh... like, well, huh, in, instead of having a, a dog leash, um, you know, you could, if, if the dog gets out of a predefined radius from you, it'll automatically say, you know, it'll, it'll, uh, vibrate and, and create like, uh, the feeling of like a tugging sort of feeling. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, you can almost think of it as like a, what do they call it? Invisible fence, uh, sort of thing. Um, to help train the uh, the dog to do that, and if the dog takes off, um, it will use the cellular network uh, to be able to, um, uh, in the GPS, just like in Nirmal's case of, of sending uh, sending off the GPS location of his uh, hot air balloon, um, he could do that with the dog. See, this seems to me, as a dog owner, this seems to me like a fundamental misunderstanding of what dog ownership is about, like. With, with all of this stuff in place, like basically you want a robot dog. Like you don't want a real dog. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, I mean, because, you know, a big part of dog ownership is, uh, you know, yes, the sense of responsibility for, you know, keeping the dog alive, um, but also, you know, being able to make sure he's, you know, walking enough and, and stuff like that. Um, and kind of outsourcing that sense of responsibility to an app seems, again, it just, it just, it, it's, Maybe I'm maybe I'm just sixty years old screaming at my TV, but like this seems mm -hmm. like uh, I don't know. Get off my lawn. That's, yeah. that's my response to that. I can imagine, and maybe it it makes it easier to train dogs. I don't know, or at least monitor their health and optimize it. But uh, I don't own a dog, so I don't know. But I but I do know from a like a motorcycle experience, um, and maybe this is similar to you with with a dog experience. Is it? Um, one of the reasons why I got a motorcycle was to get me away from the computer. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, having a dog is probably, you know, it's like, it's again, it's a way to, um, you know, get you away from the screen and pay attention to more of the real world and enjoy the real world by taking your dog for a walk instead of looking at your app to make sure that the dog is getting the right number of steps. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's uh, th so that's my objection. I think is the is the idea that a dog that dog ownership needs to be a mediated experience, right? That's the, the yeah. I think that's what I don't care for. Yep, yep. Uh, a little bit like keeping your house clean, right? Yeah. Keeping your house neat and tidy. Uh, very topical for me right now because I'm basically living in a completely unadorned home because uh, you gotta take everything off the shelves and stuff. You know when you're showing the house. Uh, so it's, you know, but all the surfaces are clean, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's something I would happily outsource to a robot, actually, now that I'm thinking yeah. about it. So, so do, you, do you currently have a, a robot service in mind to be able to do that? Uh, let's see. I don't know. I, 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 if there, <clears throat> so if there was a way I could uh, outfit my Roomba uh, to not only vacuum and mop, but also uh, uh, clean up my shelves and stuff, that would be pretty sweet. Yeah. So that's, that's something they're looking at doing. Love it. Love it. Yeah. It's yeah. Old. So yeah. So they they announced that uh, that they'll be marketing a robot that can create a map of your home by recognizing and labeling everything in it using a camera and a cloud-based uh, storage engine. And and whoa 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 <laughs> cloud-based storage. So Roomba, iRobot, the company that owns Roomba, would then have a database of all of the articles in my home. 
Yes. And where they are and where, where they belong. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, thank you. <laughs> maybe they well, could do a special deal with my insurance company. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And, and so, um, so one, the CEO said, uh, what you don't want is eight gazillion apps on the phone for every single component. What we need to do is improve things rather than make them more complicated. It, and it's to have our homes uh, to be able to track the intent of the people living in it and do the right thing. Uh huh. Yeah. Or we'll I don't think the, book about the, app, the, the home <laughs> is tracking what the intent of people, right? You're, you're saying, well, no, the, well, they're tracking the intent in the, in the sense that of like uh, my intent as to like where I want that candle, right. Or, or where well, I want that stack of books. Yeah. Well, he's saying that he wants the homes to be able to attract the intent of the people where I argue that the home is not doing the tracking. Yes, it's that's correct. The Roomba taking pictures, sending them up to the cloud, being analyzed and iRobot will tell you, um, uh, and it, it will keep a collection of where uh, the layout of your house and where everything belongs in your house. Yes. I wonder how they'll handle uh, people who change their minds. Yeah, and redecorate. <laughs> and redecorate, right? And then suddenly, yeah. you know, you go, go out to work and then the Roomba comes back and just put everything back in place. That's like a, <laughs> yeah. that's like a, it's like a Kafka novel waiting to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's, it's like, or you could have this uh, proxy war with your spouse, right? Where you, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> You don't like the way she decorated and you, you could do a rollback on the, on your cloud layout. <laughs> so while you're at work or traveling, it could, it could rearrange the, the house. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so what they're trying to do is take a lot of the expensive components and compress that down to something that is very economical. So instead of putting the thought logic into the Roomba, you basically just have a Roomba with a camera on it. Um, and it's sending all the, all the, the what it's seeing up to the cloud, and then the cloud will tell it what to do instead of having the Roomba think all that out. Sure, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yep. Um, so, do you think? So, I could imagine. Like, do you think Osama bin Laden would have had a Roomba in, in, with this kind of <laughs> capability? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no chance, right? Like, could uh, that be useful to like anybody besides iRobot? Oh yeah, yeah no the, no this is yeah. this is perfect right this is uh this is uh you need your like one warrant or national security letter uh, away from betraying the all the contents of your home uh, to the you know to the authorities yeah yeah or you could also um, send that content up to iRobot and then you can get uh, uh, optimized ads saying that hey looks like you need a new couch that's that couch is looking pretty old. When also you think about like what uh, putting in your home a robot with the capability of redecorating, um, you're like one step away from weaponizing that thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. that that robot picks up the right candlestick, and you know, that's when the fun starts. Yep. Yeah, movie plot waiting to happen. Yep. Yep. Let's see. Uh, hey, fearless leader uh, Jim Whitehurst. Uh, so his book is out. Mm-hmm. Yep, the open, the open organization. organization. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. And I've and no kidding, I've actually had people who are typically cynical about this kind of thing um, have already read the book and are they're very enthusiastic about it. They feel like it's uh, they feel like it's a great overview of the Red Hat culture and internal workings, and uh, and it's got some valuable lessons in there. Um, and again, I, I would expect that from 
you know, I guess Red Hat ideologues, but like people who are cynical about Red Hat have read the book and, and said so. Um, and apparently it's going to be kind of heavily promoted by the Harvard Business Review and stuff. So that's great. Good for Jim. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Yep. Uh, I've also seen that people are also gushing about this uh, FICO video. Um, yes. So FICO, you know, the credit score company, uh, they were just over at the OpenStack Summit uh, and did an interview with, uh, who is it, The Verge? No, who is it? Yes. Uh, no, no, it uh, was uh, Silicon Angle or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Silicon Angle. There we go. Um, anyway, they, they're talking, they talk about OpenStack, they talk about OpenShift, they talk about Ceph. Um, really great interview. Uh, it was really nice to see. And you know, the best part is like to see a customer who is actually a partner. Um, like we actually work very closely with those guys. And uh, anyway, it was nice to see that payoff. That was great. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you too. It's it's like not only did they say, oh, we bought this, we bought this. You know, it's, it's more about you know, hey, we, we were successful because we were a partner with Red Hat and not just uh, like a vendor-customer uh, relationship, which is something I, I harp on all the time because that's really how you get the most out of, uh, you know, using open source technologies is, uh, you know, working together and let us amplify your voice in the open source community. Yep, yep, for sure, for sure. So I guess, uh, let's see. So one last thing, Dave, I want to talk about is, uh, and, and, and in fact, Jim talks about this in the open organization, uh, about, uh, you know, memo list, right? The, uh, the probably Red Hat's most famous mailing list. Um, yes. this is the, uh, mailing list that everybody is on and anybody can post anything. Right. And, uh, that's, that is definitely part of the Red Hat culture. It's been around since, you know, the early days, we now got 8,000 some odd people on it. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, it's, inevitably colorful. Um, you get people arguing about all kinds of stuff on that thing. Um, anyway, I thought about MemoList uh, reading this article on Bloomberg about Slack. You know, all the kids are using Slack today. Um, mm -hmm. It's like that, uh, that fancy IRC replacement. Um, and apparently there's now a backlash on Slack where companies who are using Slack are finding there's like a, there's, there's some cultural consequences to Slack um, mm -hmm. where you get folks like you get you can get a bad or unproductive culture on your Slack unless you curate it properly, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense, mm -hmm. right? Because it's humans are involved and they're on these they're built into these communities. Uh, but you get you know uh, there's a real danger of Slack turning into like a like a bro culture um, of kind of you know Reddit style kind of one-upsmanship, um, which could be alienating to people and. Uh, like that's fine if you're on like kind of your own mailing list that can be like filtered. Um, but when companies are using Slack as intended, which is as like a productivity tool and a replacement for email, um, mm -hmm. that can be like, that can be really damaging. Anyway, it was really interesting to read this article and see how they'd, uh, they, different companies manage that problem in different ways, like creating separate channels for, uh, for chit chat. Right. Yes. Um, very much in the same way that for memo list, uh, we actually uh, forked the memo list, and now there is a Friday list, uh, which is for stuff that is kind of like explicitly irrelevant, right? Yes. Um, as opposed to kind of issues of company culture and doctrine. Um, anyway, it's really interesting. I thought there are a lot of parallels there between uh, between Slack and between memo list. Um, same kind of cultural baggage um, and uh, same kind of consequences for uh, uh, for the company and its culture. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, and I, yeah, they they talk about well, you know. Slack as being this digital water cooler, and and I agree. And just like a, a water cooler at at you know a physical work location, it's great to have. It's great to communicate with people, but you know too much of a good thing is isn't necessarily good either. 
and uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that that is you know having uh, management uh, tune things like that out is a bad idea. So they they need to be monitoring and inspecting what's going on there too, not only to get uh, the pulse of the organization, but to also um, make sure that you know people's full time job isn't to like post a memo list or to post to Slack. And right. you know you know we right. do a, a good job internally of of having the the leaderboard, um, which will you know say that oh hey you're the number one poster and um, and let people just reflect on you know is that the best and highest use of their time or are they overdoing it. Um, or or not, um, and so I, I think that that is good too. Where it's not an accusatory way of of saying somebody's spending too much time, but it's just uh, uh, time for reflection and time for management to to see who the leaders are and uh, um, discuss with people, uh, you know, moderation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so, yeah, a little transparency goes a long way on stuff like that, for yep. sure. Yep. Yeah. Cool. All right, Dave. Uh, well, with that, I'm going to go get this week started. Um, if, uh, if folks want links to uh, all the stuff that we've been talking about today, uh, where, where, where shall they go? Yeah, they need to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G is in Gunner, show.org. All right, great. Uh, well, Dave, have a, have a great week. Yeah, you too. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.